Has anybody been watching the Olympics? A couple of you. You did, Spencer did. What's your favorite event, Spencer? What do you like watching? You don't know all of it? Badminton? I got caught up watching badminton the other day, and I was actually kind of, it was intense. I was surprised how much I was getting caught up in the moment. Uh, but, you know, the, y'all see the swimming last night? The men's four by, what was it, four by 100? Man, that was intense. That was right down to the finish. It was crazy. If you haven't watched it yet, I won't spoil it. But it was really exciting. Um, what they said, the U.S. men's team has won that event every year that it's been in the Olympics. Talk about pressure uh, for the team that was up there this year. Expectations walking into it. As we've seen with, with Simone Biles, the, the expectations that people place on any individual is extremely heavy. I was having that discussion earlier in the week before any of that stuff with the gymnastics broke with somebody, and they keep talking about Simone being the greatest of all time, and I thought, man, that's a, that's a heavy thing to carry into any situation. And here she comes into the Olympics carrying that, and uh, uh, it almost broke her this week. But not only that, before any of that stuff broke, I was, it was the men's competition, and there was a guy on high bar. I can't remember what country he was from, but the commentators were talking about how this is the greatest male gymnast who's ever been. And uh, he's gotten to an age now that he, he's only competing in one event this year, and it was the high bar. And he, he had just started his routine, and I kid you, I mean, the way it played out, it was like, it was, it was perfectly timed. But the moment they said, he is the greatest male gymnast of all time, he went for a flip and missed the bar and landed face first on the mat. He's the greatest of all time. Smack. I thought, oh, golly, they just laid it on him, and he just couldn't do it. And uh, uh, it was, I mean, they, they were, the commentators then were silent for a few seconds <laughs> because they didn't know what to do. And uh, finally, Nasty Lukin spoke up, and she said, well, even the greatest have a bad day time to time. <laughs> um, but expectations that we place on other people, or even that expectations we feel, whether they're there in reality or not, from others, is a dangerous place to live. Um, and we, I mean, just the Olympics are, are the perfect picture of that. Even this week, there was one guy who really criticized Simone Biles. Another guy in the Olympics criticized her pretty hard. And then he lost, and then he lost his cool <laughs> in the thing. And uh, it was a display that he had expectations of himself and was experiencing expectations of others. And it boiled over in when he failed, and um, it, is, it is difficult in that moment to know the direction to go unless, unless you're simply pursuing what the Lord has for you. Pursuing the expectations of people, even yourself, or perceived expectations will mess you up because nobody's got the same. They're all different. And Paul actually says, Paul writes, and he says that the moment we try to please any other human being, we stop pleasing God. And so we have to please God singularly. Well, we're going to start looking at a guy today in Genesis chapter 37 who had enormous expectations placed on him because of some things that happened in his life. So Genesis chapter 37, 
If you're going to use a Bible on the pew rack there, it's on page 31, right at the beginning, page 31, Genesis 37. We're going to look at a man named Joseph. His father was named Jacob, and uh, Jacob, I don't know if you know much about Old Testament Israelites, but they all stem from him. Jacob had his name changed by God to be Israel, and Israel means someone who struggles with God. The E-L on the end of his name, Israel, L is the name for God. And God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. So you're going to see in, in today's passage and in the weeks to come, uh, the author of Genesis uses those names interchangeably, Jacob and Israel. And all his descendants become known as Israelites because they were from him. And Jacob uh, had a bunch of kids because he had a bunch of wives. Uh, verse 1 of Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So we're introduced to this Joseph here in this chapter. And uh, uh, Jacob, his father, has had 12 sons. Joseph is the 11th son born. And at this point, Joseph is 17. And Joseph's mother has been dead for almost 10 years now. She's been dead for almost 10 years. And his father has uh, four wives that it's mentioning here. And uh, Bilhah and Zippah are two of the wives. And so because Joseph's mother has been dead now for a decade or so, uh, he was taken along with some of his other half-brothers, and he spent much of his time with them, being raised alongside them. Uh, and so we have Joseph in this. And then he brings a bad report of some of those brothers to his dad, uh, which is very interesting. So Joseph, he's 17. He brings a bad report of his brothers to his father. Uh, and Joseph is kind of put in a bad light many times because of this. But really, Jewish tradition tells us, the scripture doesn't tell us this, but Jewish tradition tells us that they were eating things that were dishonorable to their father and dishonorable to God. And Joseph brought that report to their father and said, they're doing some not so hot things, dad. And so Joseph, even though it was a bad report about his brothers, he was being faithful to his father in bringing this report. He wasn't necessarily being a tattletale. And we don't, necessarily, we don't know his motives here, but we know uh, that he was saying something his brothers didn't like, something that was about his brothers, and he was bringing it to his father. And uh, his father and him had a very special relationship. Verse 3 tells us about this. Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his, his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. This is interesting. So, Jacob shows favoritism, which Jacob should know better because Jacob's own parents showed favoritism. And that caused incredible rift between not only he and his brother, but caused Jacob great fear for years and years and years and years because of the favoritism of his parents. But that lesson was not learned, and so that generational sin was passed on to him, and he displayed it there in his favoritism towards Joseph. He loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Joseph was 
the son of his favorite wife, which probably there ends the problem. You, you shouldn't have a favorite wife. Well, I guess you should. It should be your only wife. But uh, Jacob married Rachel. He wanted to marry Rachel, but Rachel's dad was conniving and uh, tricky and tricked Jacob into marrying his other daughter, Leah. And then he also gave him his daughter, Rachel. And uh, on down the line, he married both of their servants, which we already read about, Bilhah and Zilpah. Uh, so this is all in Jacob's house, and all this is going on. But Rachel's firstborn child was Joseph. And so that was his favorite wife, had a child, firstborn child. That becomes his favorite son. But the problem is, in a lot of this, especially in this patriarchal culture, Joseph was the 11th born, and he was being treated like the firstborn. Not only was he being treated, he was, giving, he, was, he was being given privileges that should have only been the firstborns, like this coat. That shouldn't have been his. That should have been the gift of the firstborn. But now Joseph is receiving it as the 11th born because he's his father's favorite, and that caused a problem. Verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to them or to him. So his brothers saw the way his father treated him and they hated him. But not, not so that they, they had this terrible emotion towards him, but they couldn't speak peaceably. They couldn't speak any kind words at all to him. Everything they spoke what was laced with, with anger and hatred and, and uh, uh, a display that they did not like him at all. You see, but the issue here is they didn't hate him because of anything he did. The brothers hated Joseph he, because he held a position with their father that they didn't think he should have. The brothers hated Joseph because of something that he did not do. Really, they hated Joseph because of something their father did. But they couldn't, I mean, you can read all, the, all of this from, from Genesis 37 all the way through Genesis 50. They never display any hate towards their father at all. It's all aimed at Joseph. If Joseph didn't do it, their father did it. But they don't hate their father, they hate Joseph. They misdirect their emotion towards the wrong person. They found it easier to hate Joseph than to hate their father. And so they aimed this, this terrible hatred towards Joseph. But the thing is, misdirected emotion is a key strategy of the enemy. Misdirected emotion is a key strategy of the enemy. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 6. We do not fight against flesh and blood. In the Greek, that literally means physical bodies. We don't fight against other physical people. That's not our enemy. We fight against, uh, or our enemy is uh, the spiritual forces, the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is the enemy, not each other. And the enemy knows this. Satan knows this. And so he will get us to misdirect our in this case, hateful emotion to the wrong source. And we all do this on some level or another with anger and frustration and irritation at each other when each other is not the issue, it's the enemy. 
And so the brothers have bought into this, and they find great hate within them towards Joseph. And then another thing happens. So they hate Joseph because of something their father did, but now their hate's about to get amplified again, not because of something that Joseph did, verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream. Now, in, in the Old Testament, dream means vision, okay? He, he could have been asleep. He may not have been asleep. We don't know. He could have been totally awake and just out in the field and had a vision, but it means vision. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So they hate him more because of his vision. He didn't give himself the vision. We're going to find out. He didn't even understand it, but he told them. He, and that may have been pride. We don't know. It doesn't say it in the text. It could have just been he loved his brothers, even though they hated him, and he just wanted to say it. And so he told them the vision, and they hated him more because of the vision. This is what it was, verse 6. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. So the hate grew from the brothers for something that was outside of Joseph, this thing that happened to him, this vision that came to him. They hated him more because of it. We're going to find out in a minute. They were jealous of him because of the relationship that he had with their father. And you know what? This is actually the way it works. When we already have a dislike towards somebody and some small thing crops up, you know, it amplifies our dislike of them exponentially. It's almost as though we're looking for reasons not to like somebody we already dislike. And in a normal circumstance, when, when we don't have dislike, that little thing would not be an issue. Somebody else had that normal thing happen or did that normal thing to us or made that normal comment, we wouldn't even think about it. But because it's somebody we dislike, it, it takes our dislike to a whole another level. You see, if one of the other brothers had had this vision, they wouldn't have thought anything about it. They would have maybe, you know, poked at him, he's their brother, but they wouldn't have hated him more because of it. But because the hate was already there, it was like throwing gasoline on the fire, and it just flamed up even more. But then he has another dream, verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. Now, I read that, and I think, Joseph, did you not get it the first time? Right? I mean, they're mad at you even more, and now you're going to go in there and tell them another. So either... Either Joseph is socially unaware of what's going on around him, <laughs> uh, or he just likes, he, he's one of those guys who just cannot not talk, can't handle the silence, and just, it just comes flowing. You all know people like that, and if you don't, then maybe look in the mirror. But it, we all know people like, they, they just flow, you just can't handle the quiet. If you have children, then it's probably your children. <laughs> we have several in our house. It's just constant you know, noise, and he just has to speak, and it's coming out of him. And he says his dream. Uh, he says, behold, I dreamed another dream. Now, I picture all the brothers saying, oh, great, you know, rolling their eyes and you know, poking each other under the table. Like, here we go again. He dreamed another dream, and here it is. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to, them, said to him, what is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now that verse is interesting. <clears throat> so the brothers, it, the, the second dream caused more problems. And the father rebuked him 
because of what he was saying. But the father held on to the dream, held on to the vision. The father held on to it and remembered it down the line because his father, Jacob, knew firsthand all about prophecy. His father had encountered prophecy several times in Genesis 25, Genesis 27, and in Genesis 28. He encountered prophecy and saw the fulfillment of that prophecy. So he knew about prophecy. He knew about visions. And so even though he may not have been a fan of what he heard, coming and bowing down, because he heard about himself being the son of that family, uh, S-U-N, in that vision, in that dream, bowing down to his son, S-O-N, and that's not something that was done in that culture, and it seemed like he was going to be dishonored because he made an assumption about what the vision meant. He had an expectation about what the vision meant. He really didn't know what it meant. The brothers didn't know what it meant. Joseph didn't know what it meant. They all assumed and had the expectation it meant Joseph was going to rule over them like an oppressor. And so they bucked up against that, didn't like it. They didn't know how God was going to work all of this out. They had no clue. They presumed that they understood what Joseph was talking about when Joseph didn't understand what he was talking about. And so Joseph's misunderstood words sparked within these others an assumption about Joseph's motives, an assumption about what this this was all talking about, anticipated future destination that Joseph was headed towards. And because they felt like they fully understood what he was talking about, they had the expectation of what was coming, how it was all going to play out. They they, uh, uh, thought that it meant something negative towards them. But in truth, none of them had any idea what the next 22 years, and that's what it would be before the fulfillment of this prophecy. 22 years. They didn't know what that was going to look like. It would be 22 years before the brothers came and knelt down before Joseph. Joseph was going to have a lot to go through. They were going to have a lot to go through in 22 years. They didn't know where this was going to take them. All they knew on the front end was this is going to be, uh, what, all they knew on the front end was the expectation they had for where they were going, when in reality the expectation was not where they were going at all. But we all do this all the time. We have an expectation about another person. We have an expectation about our own lives. We have an expectation about the way we think things should go. And when they don't go that way, we either get really angry and frustrated or we try to grab the reins and, and wrestle the thing into submission into the way we want it to be, into the way we expect it to be. And if it doesn't go that way, it causes us all kinds of anxiety and problems and issues and frustrations because we can't control it. And so the brothers, this expectation is, he thinks he's going to rule over us. He's not. We refuse to allow him to do that, and we're going to see in the coming weeks, they're going to go to the extreme of not allowing him to do that. But they... They tried to do what they wanted because they thought they understood not only the destination, they thought they knew the journey to get to the destination, but none of it was true of what they were thinking. And that's true in our own lives. Our anticipation, your anticipation of a destination will direct your expectation of the journey. Your anticipation of the destination, your anticipation of where you're going and how you will uh, uh, have a direct relation to how you think you're going to get there, how you think it's all going to play out. But what you're going to come to understand 
the more you spend with the Lord and the more these next few weeks, the more time we're going to spend with Joseph is we've got to let go and let God take it. We've got to trust the Lord because he knows way better than I do how my life should go. And if I take the reins and I take control, then I'm going to wreck it every time because I'm flying blind. He's not. He knows what he's doing. I don't. He's in absolute control. I'm not. And so why in the world would I trust me to take the reins and take control when I have absolutely no control? (laughs) Why not trust the one who is in control? Why not trust the one who is in great power? You see, what expectation does is expectation of a situation or, or, or a journey or a destination. Expectation allows our imagination free reign to construct whatever reality our heart feels like at the moment. Our imagination comes up with all kinds of different scenarios based upon our emotions in the moment or our emotions that are related to an experience we've had. And that causes problems because the secret that no one's going to tell you except the Lord in Scripture, that when you allow your heart to dictate how you think, you're allowing a, a damaged product to guide your life. The Lord said in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. I don't know if you know this, people lie to each other all the time. And the biggest offender is ourselves. We lie to ourselves all the time about situations and scenarios and what we think everything's going to look like and how we think everything's going to play out. Because God knew it. God created you. God created me. He knows people better than any people do. Or in, he knows people better than any individual person does. Because the heart is deceitful. That's why he said it. Above all things, it's desperately sick. It's desperately sick. And so we play out the worst possible case of how things are going to go and what's going to happen. And we try to, try to have expectations of, of other people and how they should act and what we believe they should do. When in reality, we should only be focused on what God has for us and what God has for me and what God wants me to do in the moment and what God has for me to do even now. Because when we have expectations of others and of ourselves, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to uh, create within us not just disappointment, but great problems. I'm going to share with you a quote about this. Um, two weeks ago, a guy said this. Uh, I, had, I made him stop, and I said, wait a minute, let me think about that for a second. I need you to say it again real slow, because it blew my mind. The guy's name is Matt Lance, and he said, expectation is premeditated resentment. Expectation is premeditated resentment. When you have an expectation about your spouse and they don't live up to it, you're creating a resentment that you didn't even know you had. When you do that with your kids, when you do that with your parents, when you do that with your boss, when you do that with your employees, when you do that with a fellow Christian, you're creating a resentment within you that is poison for your spirit and will force out the Holy Spirit. 
Expectation is premeditated resentment. But there is hope. It's not all hopeless. Okay, great. Expectation is premeditated resentment. I'm human. I have expectations about all kinds of things. I have expectations about what I'm going to have for lunch. I have expectations about how I'm going to walk out of this room, and I might trip falling up this little incline. I have expectations about everything. How am I going to get out of this scenario of constant expectation and resentment that creates bitterness in my soul? What is the hope? Well, the Lord gives us that hope. The hope is to find uh, the thing uh, that is the opposite of expectation and presumption. We have to look for what is the opposite of those things. And that's the very thing we got to turn to. The opposite of expectation and, and presumption is trust. Trust in someone else's control beyond ourselves. Trusting them, or as we're going to say, the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Here it is. It will be healing to your flesh. That word literally means insides. It will be healing to your insides and refreshment to your bones. Who has ever in their life or right now needed healing and refreshment? Anybody? Healing and refreshment or just peace. Well, here's the key, is this passage. Trust in the Lord with all your, all your heart, all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. That word lean, Tony, go back to verse 5. That word lean, do not lean on your own understanding, it means do not support yourself with your own understanding. Do not prop yourself up and support yourself with your own understanding because you should be trusting in the Lord. And then in all your ways, acknowledging him in every part of your life, everything, every part of your life, acknowledging the Lord's hand and the Lord's direction. There was a lot of hubbub a few weeks ago uh, about a Baptist preacher who was preaching somebody else's sermon. He'd got permission from the guy, and people were mad at him about this, um, even though he, he did it with permission and, and you know all this stuff. And, uh, and the, the issue that all these people were saying is... Um, you need to be doing your own deal. And they got mad that some of the people were helping him write his sermons and all this stuff. And uh, it reminded me of a story of uh, Charles Spurgeon. Have you ever heard Charles Spurgeon? Preacher, great preacher from England, late 1800s. They call him the preacher of preachers. Um, is that uh, he had heard through the grapevine that this young buck preacher was preaching one of his sermons, almost word for word. And Spurgeon got mad about it. So he summoned this kid to his office. And you get summoned by Charles Spurgeon, you're going. And so this kid comes to Spurgeon's office, and he walks in. Spurgeon's a big dude, and cigar hanging out of his mouth, big old beard. And he, Spurgeon had the biblical belief that beards were, you know, biblical, and you should have them. If you don't have them, you're against the Bible. Anyway, uh, and uh, so this kid came in, and, I mean, he just bucked. I mean, Spurgeon bucked up, big guy, and intimidated. Why are you preaching my sermon and this and that? And he said, it's, it's, and the kids are taken aback. What are you, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What, what do you talk, what sermon? And he, he said the sermon, started listing off the points. And the kids said, I, I had no idea it was yours. I got it from so-and-so. He wrote about it in his book. And Spurgeon said, no, he didn't. I got that book right here. And Spurgeon pulled it off his shelf. It was out of the dude's sermon. Spurgeon had read that book years ago and forgotten about it. 
So Spurgeon had been preaching this other guy's sermon for all these years and didn't even know it. And so he had to apologize to the kid. I'm so sorry. You see, the thing is, especially for preachers, if there's anything good we say, it's not from us, it's from God. And if we ever claim it's from us, we fall very dangerously close to doing what Herod did in Acts chapter 12, when he claimed credit for something that was actually God's, and God struck him dead immediately, and it said he was eaten by worms, right then and there. And so when, when, when Solomon writes there in Proverbs chapter 3, in all your ways acknowledge him, that's acknowledge God in everything. Every, everything good that comes from me as a preacher, everything good that comes from me as a pastor, as a parent, as a husband, is from God. Everything bad is from me. <laughs> Everything good is from him. Any wisdom that happens to be there, any truth that happens to flow through, it just gets through all the weeds to come out. All the good is from him. And so in all our ways, in every, everything, in, in the provision that we have, in the skills that we have, in the gifts that we have, they're from God. He enabled all of it. And so what Solomon is writing about is we need to acknowledge God's role in the fact that we are alive and functioning in this world. We need to acknowledge God's hand. And then when we acknowledge God's hand, that is trusting him. If he provided everything I've needed to get to this point, then he'll provide everything I need to keep going. And so he will make my path straight from this point forward. He will direct me to go wherever I need to go from this point forward if I trust him and don't support myself with my own understanding. Because my, as we've already seen, my own understanding based on the way I feel in my heart is flawed because I am flawed as a sinner. So I've got to trust the one who's not flawed. In all my ways acknowledge him and trust him. And then we get to verse 8 of that, of that passage and we see what, what the result will be. It will be healing and refreshment. So trust in the Lord. Having a trust in the Lord, it grants us internal healing and refreshment. Trust in the Lord grants internal healing and refreshment on a personal level, on an individual level. You can't control the healing and refreshment somebody else gets. You can control what you get. In, in trusting the Lord, you will experience this internal healing and refreshment. And the level of healing and refreshment we receive is determined by the level of trust had in the Lord. It's directly connected the level of healing and refreshment we receive is directly connected to the level of trust we have in the Lord. You see, reading the life of Paul in the book of Acts and through his letters, I, I am constantly amazed at Paul because of his strength and his perseverance, walking into town after town, telling people about Jesus, people getting mad, trying to kill him, people putting a hit on him. Some people at one time drug him out of the town and stoned him to death. And, and you know, Paul did all of this, but he seemed to, to go from place to place with great purpose and, and great peace in each moment. We learned, we mentioned a week or two ago about his own personal struggles, but he still walked as the Lord wanted him to walk with peace and purpose and strength because he trusted the Lord. He trusted the Lord for today. He trusted the Lord for tomorrow. And God was going to take care of it all. Up until the point when he gets his head cut off in prison, God took care of everything. And Paul did phenomenal things for the Lord. He trusted God at every turn. At every turn. 
And so our trust in the Lord will not only give us a guide in this life as we listen to his spirit and listen to his word, trusting the Lord will bring us healing and refreshment now. Healing to our insides, to the turmoil and the anxiety and the worry and the frustration. And it will bring refreshment to our bones when we feel weary, when we feel battle-weary, when we feel just weighed down by the brokenness of this world. He will bring us refreshment. He will... He will uh, uh, <laughs> Carry us on wings like eagles. If we just take his yoke upon us and learn from him. Because his burden is light. And follow after him. So you have to ask yourself, do I need internal healing and refreshment right now? Do I need it? Do you need it? I do. I mean, we live in this world. I need healing. I need refreshment. You have to ask yourself, do you need internal healing and refreshment? And then the follow-up question is, then will you trust the Lord today? Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Trust him to provide. Trust him to, to, to guide. Trust him to show you the way. And if he hasn't shown you a new way, then you keep doing the way he already showed you until he shows you a new way. Because if you jump out in front of God and try to do something while, while he hasn't shown you where to go yet, you will do what Abraham did, and you'll end up pursuing Hagar and causing generational problems for a very long time. Follow the Lord. Trust the Lord. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Maybe there's an area of your life where you have not been trusting him. You've been holding the reins. You've been trying to wrestle that thing into submission to do what you want. And today is the day, finally, you need to let go. And trust God to handle it. Because I guarantee you, God can handle it far better than you can. I promise all the way back to Exodus. I've said it many, many times. Exodus 14, 14. My wife put it on a plaque four or five years ago for me. It's in my office above my desk. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. When you speak up and you fight, you're taking the place of what God was going to do. And he's a lot better at us, than us at this. Trust the Lord. Maybe you need to trust the Lord today for the first time. Trust him with your heart, with, with your life, with your soul, with your eternity. Whether you're in the room or, or you're watching online, if you need to trust the Lord today and believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven, all of them, every single one, and then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die, then that's it. That's, this is your moment of belief. This is your moment of trust to believe. Just, just believe in the Lord. Jesus, I believe that you are son of God. You died so all my sins would be forgiven, and you rose so I can live after I die. Then you're a believer. You're a Christian. You're a follower of Christ. And there's nothing, nothing you can do to undo that. You can't sin too big tomorrow to undo the decision of belief today. You can't. There's nothing you can do tomorrow that can undo the decision that you're making because in order to sin bigger than Jesus' death, that means you have to be stronger than Jesus. And you're not. I guarantee you. Ask your spouse. You're not bigger than Jesus. 
Jesus is so much greater. His one death covered all of our sins, all of them. Everything, even the ones in the back of your head you haven't even told anybody about, but they're there. The thoughts you've had, they're, they're back there, way back in the back. He's already forgiven those if you believe. So you need to believe today. Believe today. And, and in a minute, what's going to happen? I'm going to pray. Music team's going to come. They're going to sing. And I want to talk to you. I want, I want you to come and say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. If you're online, click the button that says, I made a decision. Tell me what your decision is. Put your phone number, email there, and I'll contact you today, this afternoon. And, and, and we'll move on to the next step of what God has for you next. If you believe in Jesus, the next step is baptism. It is being baptized, showing the world you belong to Jesus. Showing the world that you're his. Displaying that for him. And we can do that. Well, the baptistry is empty at the moment. But we can do it soon. <laughs> if you want to do it today, it'll be cold, but we can do it. You can get baptized. And we'll take care of all of that. If you want to join the church and do what God has for you, use your gifts. Serve. Serve with our children. Serve with our youth. Serve where God would have you serve in some capacity. Join a small group. We can set you up one today. You can join one today. I'm teaching mine today. You can start your own today. Meet right here in the, in, in the, the sanctuary today. You can serve in that capacity. But do what God would have you to do. Trust him with your life whether for the first time or with that thing you've been hanging on to for the thousandth time, it's time to let go and let God take care of it and trust him today. So I'm going to pray. If you need to make a decision for the Lord, you just need to come and pray for your own heart, for the heart of somebody. Maybe there's somebody in your family who is having a difficult time trusting the Lord. And it's time to pray for them and their hearts in this moment.